Hello, and welcome to Theology-ish, a podcast about theology, biblical studies, uh, philosophy, and whatever else we feel like talking about. I am one of your hosts, William Berry, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Ryan Kelly. Hello, William. Hello, Ryan. How you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. How yeah, are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, about as, as good as I can be at the moment. Uh, any fun life updates for us? No. Mm. None. <laughs> Man. <laughs> how, how, how about you? You uh, got any, any life updates? Uh, is, that a, is that like a, a segment we're going to start doing? It could be. I'm not opposed. Okay. Um, uh, my wife and I just uh, adopted a second cat the other day. Which is something I don't understand why you would want to do, but, you know. To each their own. But uh, adopted ourselves a little kitten. Uh, his name's Henry, and he's very cute. And that is my life update. Nice. Congratulations on the new I, I was going to say family member, but that feels wrong because it's a cat. So I mean, it's you know, it's it's our little family, and it's the closest thing I have to a child at the moment. So Which, not very close. No, no, in, not very close at all. In totality, no. But yeah, very different things. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Tonight we are going to be talking about. The Eucharist, the Holy Eucharist, in fact, a.k.a. Holy Communion, a.k.a. Regular Communion, a.k.a. the Lord's Supper, a.k.a. Church Snack Time. The Last Supper, it's got a lot of names. Yeah, it goes by many titles, so, uh... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What what about the Eucharist are are we going to talk about? Well, we've got a... A list of things we're going to be discussing about the Eucharist. Um, there are some key topics I want to touch on. Um, this is going to reflect the baptism episode just a little bit, in yes. that both baptism and the Eucharist are uh, sacraments. Sacraments. Thank you. Yes, the word was escaping me there, um, but they are both holy sacraments within the the church. We're going to touch on quite a few things here, um, as well as go through a decent number of scripture um, and a couple of other historical uh, records regarding the Eucharist, a.k.a. communion, a.k.a. all those other things. Um, so let's let's kind of dive into it here, and I'll just ask the kind of the baseline question here. What is the Eucharist? What is communion? Well, Eucharist um, is a word that means Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. Um, I believe it's Latin. It might be Greek. Mm, is it Latin or Greek? It's one of those. It's one of those. A language that uh, most people don't speak anymore. But it it uh, it has always been part of the church, much like baptism has always been part of the church. Um, it's gone by many names throughout history. There was a time when it was referred to as the love feast or the agape feast. Um, 
and that led to some accusations against the early church of, uh, shall we say, debauchery. Um, immoral acts. Yeah, immoral uh, shenanigans, um, which were unfounded and baseless because the love feast, as it was, was just a meal. That's all it was. And it's originally how it starts, but by the, oh, I want to say, once we start getting into the second century, third century, somewhere in there, it starts to get stripped down to the basic elements of uh, bread and wine, and that's what it is composed of. Uh, There's not really a a theological reason for that, I don't believe. I think it just became a, a matter of practicality, but instead of having a potluck every single week, they brought it down to just the bread and wine. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that reflecting what Holy Scripture says probably factored into that because Jesus consecrates the bread and the wine at the Last Supper. He does not uh, talk about the uh, the lamb chops or the Peach mashed potatoes. He, yeah, he doesn't talk about any of that stuff, so it just kind of falls off as uh, the centuries go on um so yeah it's it's always been a thing christians have always done it uh some of our earliest non-christian sources about christianity mention it it was a central part of the christian worship um theologically it's been understood a couple of different ways throughout the history of the church um now as we've mentioned before, you and I are Protestant. Yes. Uh, but we're going to talk about uh, stuff that sounds Catholic, not because we are Catholic, but because that reflects the history of the church, and it is what it is. So for most of the history of the church, there has been a very literal understanding of it as the body and blood of Christ. Most of us, or some of us at least, might be familiar with the term transubstantiation mm-hmm. that the Catholics use. Yep. That is the position, and they're, they're pulling from Aristotelian metaphysics when they talk about this kind of thing. And it's first articulated by St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. I believe he's a, a scholastic theologian. He writes the Summa Theologica. Um, It's one of the most influential and important theological works of the Middle Ages. So he writes his Summa Theologica, and in the Summa Theologica, he coins the term transubstantiation. And as he's pulling from Aristotelian metaphysics, there's this idea of essences, which is the bedrock of how a thing be— Right, You can do nothing to make the thing not what it is. Yeah. Right. So we have a horse, and the horse has an essence of horseness, right? Yeah. But it might have accidents like – and by accidents, I mean things that are not necessary to it being a horse. It's okay. F- coat is brown in color. That's an accident. It has two eyes. That's an accident because we could gouge one eye out. And it would still be a horse. Sure. Right. It has four legs. That 
an accident. It could lose a leg and it would still be a horse. Probably not a live horse for very long. It would probably go to the glue factory, but that's neither here nor there. Um, um, So we have substances and accidents. And Aquinas says that the bread and wine maintain the accidents of bread and wine, but they become, in essence, Christ's flesh and blood, right? So Christ is really bodily present in the Eucharist. That is the Catholic doctrine. Yep. Um, And that is not talked about in those words exactly, but more or less what the church taught up until that time. Uh, It isn't until Aquinas that he starts like digging into what exactly it means for Christ to be present. Um, Once we get into the Protestant Reformation, Luther uh, starts teaching what is often referred to as uh, consubstantiation, which is that Christ is spiritually present in the Eucharist rather than physically present. Okay. Um, And this is, I believe, also taught by Presbyterians. So they don't think that it is really Christ's Christ's flesh and really Christ's blood, but that Christ is present in the bread and the wine. Well, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that debate um, here in a bit. Um, It is interesting, though, because when you really think about it, Christ is present in spirit in everything, right? All things come from God. All good things come from God. And if you are partaking in something that is good, it is therefore from God. And as such, it has to be with God, right? God is present in that thing. You know, um, I'm reminded of, uh, um, some scripture, which I can't remember the exact first references, unfortunately. Um, but there is a, a worship song that actually mentions these references. If you've ever heard So Will I a hundred billion mm-hmm. times by Hillsong Worship, uh, there's that whole bridge section, you know, if the rocks cry out in silence, so will I. If, if the oceans roar your greatness, so will I. Um, it's this idea that God is present in everything. Mm-hmm. God is in everything because everything is in God. Um, with the exception, of course, of sin and evil and deplorable things. But to that effect, about the whole transubstantiation debate and all that stuff, this this idea of God being spiritually present in the bread and in the wine, of Christ spiritually being present, mm-hmm. regardless if transubstantiation is the case, I think that part is undeniable. Well, it that, has that, to be that That way. brings us to our third method of understanding the Eucharist, which is uh, Ulrich Zwingli's understanding of the Eucharist, which uh, if you've listened to our episode on baptism— Or the first episode. Or the first episode where we bagged on Zwingli for a solid 15 minutes. Uh, (laughs) You might remember that name. He believed—so the tradition in Protestantism that follows Zwingliism becomes the Baptist movement and ultimately— all of its flavors and uh, ways of being, which is how most Christians in America, for sure, and 
I, I think the Baptist denomination might be one of the largest in the world. I think it might be the largest. I'm not 100% sure. I've got some friends over in like Denmark that have talked about the Baptist movement being over there. So it's, yeah, it's certainly I mean, present. It's kind of where it's from, more or less, that area. Yeah. Um, anyway, the Zwingli thought that baptism and the Eucharist were symbolic, that it symbolizes Christ's flesh and it symbolizes Christ's blood. Now, Zwingli will argue that these are symbolic. Yes. I think we can both agree that you and I in this paper will be arguing it is not symbolic. Yeah, um, and I, I'm not going to appeal to the fact that things are older than Zwingli and that that necessarily makes them right, but it should give us pause that it took about 1,530 years before a Christian was like, mm, no, this is just symbolic, because that's how long it took for Zwingli to come on the scene and be like, no, this is just symbolic. Now, um, there's those are the three main views on the Eucharist and communion that you'll come upon if you read a book about like the theology of the Eucharist or a book on an introduction to theology or whatever. But there's actually a fourth view that's very seldom talked about. Is there? There is. It's the Eastern Orthodox view on the Eucharist. Okay. Now, around the late 19th century, early 20th century, so 18-something, 19-0-something. Yeah. The Eastern Orthodox Church starts adopting the language of transubstantiation while not exactly affirming the doctrine of it. They just kind of borrow the verbiage. Um, the Eastern Orthodox Church now and always has affirmed Christ's real presence in the sacrament of Holy Communion. Okay. But how Christ is really present, they don't really uh, dig into. This is an interesting quirk of Eastern Orthodox theology um, that they – it's not that they're uninterested or unable to talk about things uh, – in very systematic philosophical terms, but they very rarely do. They're much more interested in how Holy Communion, uh, the way that it impacts the soul. And they, they use the term mystery a lot okay. when describing communion and when describing baptism and the yeah. other sacraments. Um, mystery is the word they use. Which I think is uh, – there's something compelling to that. Absolutely. Um, because I, I don't – I don't know. I don't know, man. I, I The transubstantiation thing sounds weird. It does. And then if it's consubstantiation, it's like, okay, so was, is this special? Is it special for Christ to be spiritually present when he's kind of you know that all the time everywhere? You know? Yeah, that, it, the, it, there's a little bit of a breakdown there. If he's only spiritually present, well, he's spiritually present the rest of the time too. All so, the time, everywhere, All forever. the time, everywhere. And then if you get into the symbolic thing, well, 
shucks, why are we even doing it then? Because it doesn't do anything. Is it worth doing if it's not doing something, you know? Yeah. Anyway, those are that, that's a, a brief overview of uh, some of the different positions on the Eucharist that are out there that you'll encounter. Um, Tell you what, you're getting better at these these brief overviews too. We're only like 16 minutes in. Sweet, I'm, I'm becoming less of a windbag. Yeah, um, <laughs> good job. So, Ryan, here on this very public platform, why don't you go ahead and tell us which one is right and which ones, which people that have a, an opinion on this are wrong well just as in a previous episode we we determined that if i have not approved a theological work you shouldn't be reading it and it's wrong it's true Ryan in the same is, uh, way my opinion on transubstantiation is also law you, um, you are the bulwark of orthodoxy yes <laughs> you, you uh so tell us what what should we believe well all all jokes aside, of course, you can you can believe whatever you want, and I'll only make fun of you a little bit for that. Well, I'll make fun of you a lot. Yeah, <laughs> what you believe, <laughs> um, you can believe what you want, but if you're and wrong, you know. Perhaps my opinion will be changed over the course of this discussion. We'll see how things go. Um, and as we as we talk about this, as I stand right now, I don't want to sound Catholic, but I lean towards transubstantiation. And I think the reasoning behind that is the exact reason you brought up earlier about the whole consubstantiation and all that is if it's just that Christ is spiritually present or if it is purely symbolic or something to that effect, is is it really that special? Does it really matter? Because that's, that's true for countless things in this world christ is present everywhere in everything good at all times forever until the end of eternity that will never change and that is special in its own right don't get me wrong that's that's a very good thing that's a very special thing but But then why do holy communion exactly because you're already interacting with the world anyway so what makes communion special if that is the case so and communion is special yes like so that if it was not special we wouldn't do it in the same way during our baptism episode as we talked about how baptism was very important to christ clearly and right. he not only told us to do it he himself did it um albeit a little confusing as perhaps to why he did that. We we may not ever know for sure. Well, to fulfill all righteousness, of Ryan. Course, yes. What but I, whatever that means. <laughs> this is perhaps almost in the same vein of that, in that Christ very clearly told us to do this, and it was important to him. And it was important to him that we partook we partake in it, right? That leads me to believe that. There is something more to it than just symbolism or just spiritual presence of Christ, because that's true for everything. And it's important to all of the Christians that follow Christ, you know, um, the apostles and the generations of believers directly following the apostles and the generation of believers after that and after that and after that. 
Um, if for a you, long time. For until 15-something. If you read them, you will find that they unanimously agree that there is um, a real presence in the Holy Eucharist. And how they talk about it differs very, very little. Um, and it isn't until we get into the scholastic period that we get the language of transubstantiation, but the doctrine, as it were, of transubstantiation is there throughout. And no one really seems interested in challenging it unless they're a blatant heretic who is, you know, someone like uh, Arius or Marcion or... <clears throat> Swingley. <laughs> Swingley. I, well, I don't know if I'd say Zwingli was a heretic. He might have been. I don't know. That's not what this episode's about. I just don't like him very much. Well, I've, you know, I've never actually read Zwingli's writings. Okay. I've read about Zwingli, and I have read what other people say he said. So in the interest of being fair to Zwingli, maybe he wasn't a heretic. I'm maybe. not a big fan of his theology insofar as I understand it. Um, yeah. Because if I understand his theology right, then I, maybe maybe he was a heretic. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. But uh, anyway, <laughs> all that to say, um, what is what is your stance on transubstantiation? Uh, transubstantiation in particular or real presence in the Eucharist um, or both? Both, I guess. I mean, how do you feel about what it it is or is not and how that plays into into the faith? I, I'm going to defer to my brothers and sisters in Christ who came before me and who came before Zwingli and say that Christ is truly present in the bread and wine. Um, and I'm going to kind of cop out and uh, lean into the Eastern Orthodox position of it being a mystery, that he's present. How is he present, you might ask? Well, I don't, he's kind. He's, he's there. There you go. He's present. <laughs> and that that's... Uh, that's my position on that. Well, uh, there you go, folks. It has been confirmed on this episode that we are, in fact, Catholic. That's the there end of the episode. There are worse things to be, Ryan. Yeah, that's that's the end of the episode. Uh, We're Catholic. Thanks for listening. Well, I, I wouldn't go that far. We're, here, <laughs> here's the thing. We might be Catholic, but we're very bad Catholics. So I've said this before, actually, to uh, a dear friend of mine at my church, um, when we were talking just kind of casually about Christianity and, and the faith and, and history and all that. And I happened to make the passing comment like, yeah, I am a Catholic. I'm just not a Roman Catholic, right? Mm. I am not what, what would now be considered a Catholic. I am Catholic in the sense of that's what Christians called themselves for quite a long time back in the day before they really adopted the term Christian and Catholic. If you actually don't know what that word means, literally means like all encompassing or universal. or universal. And the, the church of Christ is exactly that it's all encompassing. It is universal because Christ is all encompassing and universal. So, I would make the argument that we are Catholics. We are not Roman Catholics, but we are Catholics. Well, I, I, I think that uh, 
if we are Catholics, we're bad Catholics. Perhaps. Um, as bad Catholics, we're even worse Protestants. So, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. You know, I, I, I've only been to one mass and I've never been to confession. So I, I guess I'm, man. Um, You're slacking. I'm slacking, man. But but uh, anyway, that's, yeah. Moving uh, on. That's enough of our opinions. Uh, yeah, we, we so want to get into. Uh, we're going to get into what some people smarter than us perhaps had to say. So, oh, thank God. <laughs> I wanted to turn to Holy Scripture first because that is almost, actually, not even almost. It just is always the best thing you can turn to first for things in general. Um, We've got a small list of references here that we want to cover that talk about the Lord's Supper, all of course of which are in the New Testament, as that is when Jesus mandates the Lord's Supper to the disciples. Um, let's 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 read these verses. Let's let's see what the Bible had to say about the Eucharist. Um, I will say most of these references are just the different charges of the Eucharist from the different Gospels. So when Jesus partakes of it with the disciples in the three different Gospels that it is present in, as well as uh, 1 Corinthians has quite a lot to say about it, actually, which is another thing we're going to touch on. Um, I will go ahead and, and kick us off here, though, which is going to be in Mark. Uh, I'm going to be reading Mark chapter 14, verses 20 through 2, 22 through 25. Um, this is as read through an NRSV translation Bible, and it reads as such. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, he being Jesus, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So, this is the Lord's Supper. This is the Eucharist. This is, in, in by all accounts, the first time this happens because Jesus is just now doing it for the first time and telling his disciples to do it. Um, During the uh, Passover feast. Yes. 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 Um, and I'll mention too, before we get into these other references as well, that we actually see this in, in three of the gospels, but not the fourth. We see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not John. So before we get into these other verses real quick, I did just want to touch on that. Is it significant that John doesn't mention the, the charge of the Eucharist, of the Lord's Supper? Is that significant? What do you mean by significant? Does it matter? Does it matter that he doesn't talk about it, but the others do? Uh, Should we pay attention to that for any reason? Yes and no. Like, like it, it's... I, I would argue that in Joannian literature overall, there are Eucharistic themes that are present. Um, he doesn't provide a uh, institution of the Lord's Supper like the Synoptic Gospels do. Um, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is not a Synoptic Gospel. Um 
So it's interesting. I, I don't think that the churches John was in charge of weren't doing the Eucharist. That's not the other ancient sources that we have don't bear that out. Um, Eusebius tells us, for what it's worth, that John, as an old man, found that the other Gospels were written, and he's kind of says to himself, well, all these other Gospels are talking about uh, events later in Jesus's life, so then he writes a Gospel that covers like the first half of Jesus's ministry. Yeah. Um, and that's why there's so much difference between John's gospel and the other gospels. I, I don't know how fair of an interpretation that is. That's what Eusebius thinks. I don't know. Cause John still has the crucifixion. He still has the resurrection. He still has stuff that happens very clearly at the end of Jesus's ministry. So I don't know. But it, yeah, we we should not not have communion because John doesn't talk about it. Yeah, if that makes sense. That's that's but, totally fair. But, so. but there are uh, Eucharistic themes in other places in John. If you look for there bread are. and wine, it comes up a lot. And so. there was one in particular I almost actually put down as a reference here for this episode, but I uh, I decided to cut out for the sake of time, just in case we didn't have it. So I don't have it on hand, unfortunately, but John does mention those. Yeah, and like, uh, I'm just flipped John open to a random spot. Jesus is the true vine, right? And so this, this is John chapter 15. I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. And what do you do with the fruit of of a vine. Well, you, know, you, you make, make wine you with make it. You make wine with it. Or you know, I guess you could make jam or something. But uh, – <laughs> Yeah, the holy jam. That imagery of – Take jam shots. Of uh, of wine and vines. It's all over in it, John. It's all over in John. You just have John. to look for it. If you're – the bread of heaven, that's John chapter 6. Uh Feeding the 5,000, he does that with what? Bread. Bread. And, and fish. And but fish. also bread. Uh, there's... Yeah, so all that to say... The uh, wedding at Cana, where yeah. he make, turns the water into white. So the Eucharistic yeah. themes are all over John, but that's not yeah. what we're talking but about today. Moving away from John uh, and back to Mark here with, with what we just read. So this was an account of the Lord charging the Lord's Supper to the disciples, what do you have to say about this? Is there anything in particular that stands out? Something we can take from that? What What do you got to say about that? Um, you know, it, it's really short because it's Mark, and everything that Mark says is pretty pretty terse. So, uh, I don't have any particular thoughts on what Mark says. I think that the uh, institution of the Eucharist in Luke is more interesting. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, but first, we're going to – is there anything you'd like to point out about the – Well, I the, – the one thing I think I want to point out about this is something that you see frequently in, in all of Holy Scripture, um, especially in the New Testament, though – um, even in regards to Jesus and what he says is 
this is not something that is presented as optional, right? He presents this to the disciples and says, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the cup and drink it. This is not a, oh, you should do this because it would make me happy, or you could do this and that would that would make me feel good and maybe that would give you some brownie points to the Father. It is, do this. This is a command to you. I am telling you to do this. And if memory serves, that's something we're going to see in all of these references as well, is that this is a command. This is something that is clear-cut, do this. And... My point with all that is that stands for us today because as students of the disciples in our own right and as followers of Christ, we are called to lead a life that mirrors Christ as, as closely as we, can, as we can. And if he's telling the disciples do this, that means in, in a sense, he's also telling us do this. Mm-hmm. Any, anything to say about that or... Nope. That's fair enough. All right. <laughs> that is... It, it is what it is. That is Mark's account of the Eucharist then. Uh, Our next one is uh, yeah. from Matthew 26, verses 26 through 30. This is also from the NRSV, so same translation. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, which is almost exactly the same as Mark's. It is. The one thing in particular that caught my eye is that those last two kind of like sentences, right? Mm-hmm. They they sang the hymn and and went to the mount. Now, not that this is particularly important to the Eucharist itself, but I do find it interesting that he makes mention that they, they sang hymns together. Well, th- that and, is uh, mentioned in the following verse in Mark. If you oh, carry well, on to verse 26, that's it says, just uh, uh, an oversight on my part. When then. they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So it's there in both. Okay, that's, that's an oversight on my part then. Um, either way, I do find it interesting that they make mention of that. Um, I, I think in the biggest difference that I'd like to just point out— um, In Matthew, he says, I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom, right? And in Mark, he says, truly, I tell you, I will never again drink the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God, right? Okay. So there's slightly different verbiage there put put in Jesus's uh, Jesus's mouth, which is... Interesting. It is, but as as a retort to that, perhaps that's something we see a lot in the gospel. Oh yeah, and we see that everywhere both, in the gospel. Both of these are indicative of the gospel writers. Ma- Mark is all about the kingdom of God. He talks yep. about that all the time, um, and Matthew, the verbiage of Father, is very very present. 
Um, so th- those are just flavors of the gospel authors. I'm, I'm not pointing that out. It's like, check it out. They're different. So like, <laughs> you're going to do it when they're different. Like, can you even trust them, man? I'm just pointing that out as like, th- those are indicative of the kinds of, uh, yeah. things that the gospel authors have in mind. One of them and is very into the kingdom of God as in the kingdom of heaven. And the other is very, uh, about the father. And this is an argument you see a lot of people make, um, a bad a argument. Of, yes. Uh, a bad argument. You see a lot of atheists or agnostics or whatever make that, Oh, well, this guy said, Jesus said this. And this guy said, Jesus said something slightly different. Therefore, how can you trust it? And my answer is, it means the exact same thing. Just because they used a different verb doesn't matter, and you're just dumb. And in both of them, he is instituting partaking of the bread as his body and drinking of the wine as his blood. It only becomes a problem if you're nitpicking about adjectives, yeah, the, which is a silly thing to do that you wouldn't do with any other the exact wordage that he uses matters very little as long as the point he's making is the same yeah the overarching thrust of the passages is more or less identical whereas the specific wording has a little bit of deviation yeah but that that shouldn't be a a problem for the faithful that's what matthew had to say about that account if ooh, allow you have luke as well oh yeah um, if you want to go ahead and pull up Luke chapter 22 and read that account. Where is it? 14 Luke through 22, 23. 14 through 23. Wow. You're making me read like a whole paragraph. I'm sorry. It's fine. I forgive you. When the hour came, he took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the king. I will not. Eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But see, the one who betrays me is with me, and his hand is on the table. For the Son of Man is going, as it has been determined, but woe to that one of by whom he is betrayed. Then he began to, they began to ask one another which one of them it could be who would do this. So Luke's account is a bit more long-winded and detailed than the other two. Yeah, a little longer. A little, long, a little bit couple, longer. A couple sentences more. Yeah, and by many accounts, this is considered to be many people's favorites um, just because of that fact, because it seems to be a little bit more detailed than others. Um, the, the thing that stuck out to me most, and this doesn't really matter, it just caught my attention, is that the comment about him not drinking of the fruit of the vine until till the day comes when he drinks it again in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. In Luke's account, he makes that before he passes around the bread and the wine, whereas in the other two accounts, he makes that comment afterwards. 
So not that that actually matters or changes anything. It's just an interesting thing I, I kind of noticed. And I would bet money, not a lot of money, like a quarter, that someone has managed to get a doctorate by drawing attention to that very fact. Probably. And, and writing a 300-page essay on why it's important that in Luke it, it comes prior. And, you know, good for that person who got that doctorate, but as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't really matter. It's yeah, not just, really, but it, it it's is just interesting. interesting. Yeah. Um, I have a copy of the Gospels, and it's all four of them in columns where they are lined up so that you can look at the analogous passages. Okay, so it's like next Gospels. to each other. Yeah, um, so you're able to look at them all at the same time. Um, and yeah, uh, I say that because I wish I had brought it. Um, mm. <laughs> <laughs> not because it's particularly relevant. It would have been convenient to have it. So yeah. That way we could just look at it through there um anyway next time next time yeah it's interesting that he uh in luke he has a kind of uh austerity about him where he's like oh i'll never have this again until the day of the kingdom of heaven and then he goes about and does his thing and in the other ones he does the thing and then he's like oh man guys sure i'm gonna miss oh, this cheese ah oh, cheese and he he's slightly less austere in those but in luke you can almost picture him holding up the cup and being like i shan't taste of the fruit of the vine again Man, until the been, kingdom of heaven that would have been so cool yeah because, can you imagine oh that would have been so cool and again this is indicative of the different authors of the gospels and how they yes. talk about things because luke his jesus is very austere and, and uh noble I guess is is a good way to describe him. It, yeah. Luke's Jesus is the one who says on the cross, "Into your hands I commit my spirit." You know, he's yeah, he's real. Uh, he's he's cool. He's chill. He's it's a cool all guy. Fine. Meanwhile, I think it's uh, Mark who's has Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, um, I think that's Mark. It might be Matthew. I, I believe it's Mark. Yeah, but that would fit with Mark. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't Anywho, know. Offhand. Anywho, um, that, but that, that well, fits with the different gospel authors. Yeah, so that's the three that. gospel accounts of the Eucharist and Christ's charge of it to the church. Now, of course, again, all of those were extremely similar, practically identical, very minute differences. There is, however, one more account of it, which is in 1 Corinthians by, by Paul. Now, 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 tell me, William, was Paul present at the charge for the Eucharist? No. So, here's here's a fun little thing I'm going to do. I'm I'm going to pretend that I'm I'm someone who hates Christians. I think you guys are dumb and you look dumb. Well, Paul wasn't there, bro. So, how should I be able to trust what he has to say about it if he wasn't there, bro? Uh, I mean, fair enough. <laughs> I mean, we don't have anything from any extant documents from Peter or John or Bartholomew or James Most or Thomas or any of them being like, 
guys, Paul's an idiot and he's wrong. So, you know, that's something to bear in mind that all of the people who were there are cool with the things that Paul is saying about it. It's point number one. Point number two is uh, if you believe Paul, and if you're that kind of person who has that kind of position where you're like, no, I don't trust Paul. He wasn't even, he didn't even know Jesus. Paul makes some very interesting claims, uh, which we will be reading shortly, where Paul is quite adamant that he didn't receive instructions on how to do this from Peter. He didn't receive instructions on baptism from Barnabas. He wasn't taught about the true nature of Jesus Christ by uh, Bartholomew or Thomas or James or any of the other 12. He was taught by Christ himself, which is really interesting. And even more interesting that the things Paul was evidently taught by Christ himself after Christ is dead, which is, you know, do with that what you will. Yeah. It matches up really, really closely, if not identically, with the things that Peter and Thomas and James and the others were taught by Jesus themselves. It does. And this is no surprise to any modern Protestant anymore, but the the modern Protestant church, especially here in the West, is practically built on the back of Paul. Paul has such a major influence on the Protestant church, right? Yes. Without Paul, there is no Protestant church. Well, and maybe. Not the way it is today, yeah, especially. Protestants love Paul because of Romans, um, and Luther's interpretations yes. of it. But that it, aside, um, you know, yeah. we hear often that Peter is the rock upon which the church was built, which is fair. Peter's great. And the other gospels and everything have, have a lot of great stuff in them. And there's some great, great stuff. And without those things, the church would undoubtedly not be the same as it is today. Paul is, is special to the Protestant church, right? Paul, by word count, wrote a third of the New Testament. Luke, roughly a third of the New Testament, and then the other authors make up that last third. Paul wrote a a third of the New Testament and, by all accounts, has a lot more influence and notoriety within Holy Scripture than most other authors do. And I think for that reason alone, it's really important to pay attention to Paul. Regardless if he was there for the charge of of the Eucharist, what Paul does say is very similar, if not identical, to what the other accounts have to say. And that is important to pay attention to because it's real interesting that someone who wasn't there would have would have a near identical account regarding that event. Especially in you gotta remember, this is back in those days where these things didn't get around too fast. A lot of this was just word of mouth. People were living in different cities, in different countries. It took weeks, months just to travel from place to place. They didn't have written accounts for a lot of this stuff back then. You know, when Paul was writing 1 Corinthians, he didn't have the Gospels, right? 
those probably not. No. Those were almost certainly not dispersed amongst the church in any meaningful way at we're the time. We're looking at mm, probably about 10 to maybe 20 years before the Gospels are penned. Yeah. When, when Paul's writing. So the fact that he was so close to this, he was so nearly identical to what the other accounts had to say, that's that's something to pay attention to. So shall, shall we look at uh, what what Paul says? We should. All right. Um, uh, you you so, want to take the first section? On, yeah, on so uses? we're in 1 Corinthians here. Um, so sure. before Paul even gets into his account of the institution of the Lord's Supper, he talks about abusing it. And of course, this is to the Corinthian, oh, excuse me, this is to the Corinthian church who, as I'm sure most of us are aware, were having a lot of issues when Paul was writing to them. Oh, those Corinthians. <laughs> those Corinthians. Always having issues. And... Didn't stop there, because as we covered in the last episode, Clement had to write to them again. Those silly Corinthians. <laughs> Those goofy Corinthians. Those. And they're sinning. Oh. Um, Our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. So before he talks about the actual institution of the Eucharist, he talks about what I assume the Corinthians were doing with it, which wasn't great. So let's let's read through that. It's your turn to read. Yes, yeah, so this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 22. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are dis- uh, divisions, I, excuse me, there are divisions among you, and some extent, and to some extent I believe it. Indeed, there may have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. Yeah, so remember earlier when we talked briefly about how it was like a full-blown blown meal, and it was called the agape feast, yeah. the love feast, right? So instead of being a potluck where everyone is coming together and sharing like they're supposed to be doing in the church in Corinth, it appears to be the case that— uh, People were bringing doggy bags of food, and those who had uh, food to bring with them were uh, going off into the corner and eating their uh, their microwave enchiladas on their own, while someone else who was poor just sat over to the side and didn't have anything to eat. Um, That's not good. No, it's not. It's not how Paul taught them to do that, which he will get into in the next section. Yeah, and—, and before we even move on to this next section with his account of, of the institution of the Eucharist, um, as well as uh, what he has to say about partaking of it uh, regarding the unworthy, as he puts it, this, I think, is a good time to talk about does it matter how you take the Eucharist? Now, like, does it have to be bread? It, in- precisely. This is something you see... It, it, here in the States, especially in Protestant churches, 
we don't drink actual wine, right? We we drink grape juice. And we don't eat bread. We eat, you know, little wafer crackers a lot of the time or unleavened bread. Which, if, it, to be fair, it probably would have been like a, a matzah or... Perhaps, so, but... Well, probably it's, because it's from the Passover feast. Yeah. And the Passover feast, part of that is But matzah. certainly with the wine. Yeah. Today, most... It's usually grape Most juice. Western churches drink grape juice. If you're Protestant. If you're way. not a, a more traditional church. Yeah. Churches, the, the liturgical denominations, uh, Catholics, uh, Eastern Orthodox, uh, Lutherans, Presbyterians... And Anglicans and some Pentecostals. It depends. Some Pentecostals, uh, but the, yeah, it's generally the, those. Yeah. All those denominations so, will do wine. Other denominations will do grape juice. Yeah. I've been to a couple churches where they had both. Okay, and it was like a concession for they. They were holding on to the tradition of doing it with wine, but they had a concession for potential people who might struggle with alcoholism. Yeah, They're like here. Have some grape juice. Don't yeah. <laughs> if, if you're struggling with it, don't uh, no need so for that. With uh, with him talking about all these people who are you know you're coming in here and you're bringing your doggy bags of food, and you're eating in the corner, and this dude's over here starving, and this dude's over here getting drunk. Does it matter if it's specifically bread and wine? Does it matter if it's grape juice and crackers? Does it matter if it's lasagna and Sprite? You know, is it important or rather is is what's important why you're doing it? Is it important that this is in the name of Christ? This is to represent the body and the blood, which is broken and spilled out for me and for the uh, for the many. You know, is that the part that's important or rather is it that and that it specifically has to be these two very specific things? Uh, yeah. I I want to say yes, but also I want to say no. Okay. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> and that's a good answer for a lot of things. All right. Um, let's break it down. Okay. Right, let's break it down, y'all. Yeah, brother. Yeah. Uh. Okay. <laughs> so. When Christ institutes the Lord's Supper, it is during the Passover feast. So he's going to have a couple dishes on the table. There's going to be bread. There's going to be wine. There's going to be lamb. There's going to be bitter herbs. Um, and other things. Other things. There's there's like more. Two or three other dishes that are present. Um. And he doesn't use any of the other dishes. He uses the bread and he uses the wine. So, he okay. could have said... The lamb. The lamb. I. This lamb is my body, which a lamb slain for your which iniquities. Which would fit very which thematically, would, actually. Yeah, that would have been great. He could have that would have made a lot of sense. These bitters are my... Uh, guts that are spilled for your behalf or that are and as i drink this cup it is bitter or something he could have done yeah. that he could have done something else but he doesn't he says this is my body that is broken for you take and eat this is my blood that is poured out for the sins of many take and drink that's the things he says so 
uh, I'm if let let me put it this way. Grape juice is just wine that isn't yet. <laughs> it's virgin grape juice. Yeah, it, it or, virgin, or virgin wine. Sorry. If you open grape juice, put it in the fridge, and forget about it for about four months, and Your then wife take has it done back that. out. Yeah, yeah, she has <laughs> accidentally, albeit, but yeah. she's done it. You take that grape juice back out. It's not grape juice anymore, buddy. <laughs> it turns into <laughs> something else. Um, so I'll say that that's similar enough, and uh, you're halfway joking mention of lasagna well if it was a lasagna noodle without the bread or without the the cheese and and the the sauce and the sausage if it was just the noodle in many ways it's kind of a bread it's wheat water and and salt that's kind of what all breads are so what i'm kind of gathering and this is this is how maybe i feel and feel free to disagree. What I'm gathering, though, is that you you get the sense that it should be bread and wine. But say for the drunkard, perhaps, grape juice is fine. For the child, grape juice is fine. Or if bread just happens to not be available, a cracker is okay. Yeah, or and a cracker a noodle's is fine. It's, we're kind of into the, the space of is a hot dog a sandwich? Is a cracker bread? Hot dog is a taco, mm, actually, but it, we're going to blow past that. Hot dog is a sandwich, uh, <laughs> and a cracker is bread in, yeah. in many ways. And matzah is just a, so, a very specific type of saltine. In the same way that, as we talked about in the last the last episode with uh, baptism, mm-hmm. not the last episode, but the one before, right? in the Didache, where it, it, that, that whole section the Didache has about baptism is so clear about, I don't care how you get baptized, just do it in the same vein the eucharist it, its rules are loose right there's uh, there's a little leeway there the important thing is that you're doing it i mean i let's put it this way if you can do some sort of grape drink <laughs> yeah do that and if you can do some sort of wheat and flour baked product, yeast based product. Well, matzah doesn't have yeast, and yeah. it would have been matzah at the Passover yeah. meal. Um, so you don't even need yeast in it. And un- 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 you know, I've wrestled with that before going to a church where communion was done with uh, like dinner rolls, uh, and yeah. I was like, okay. During the Passover feast, it's inherently going to be un- unleavened bread because the whole reason that it's unleavened is because during the Passover, they didn't have time to wait for the bread to leaven as they fleed from the, the Egyptians. So as you're having the special meal to commemorate it, you're going to eat unleavened bread. So it's matzah. So Jesus would have had unleavened bread when he institutes the uh, the Eucharist. So is it okay to do it with a dinner roll or is that like wrong? And I, I, I don't think it is. That's some the sort stance of bread, I take. Some sort of grape drink, not grape Kool Aid. That, <laughs> yeah, not that. Uh, unless you know, if you are not able to get those things for some reason. Well, and that's that's kind of one of my things is I think of people in third world countries, right? People living in literal poverty, people who cannot afford grape juice or actual bread 
if someone in Haiti or South Africa or something like that says, I'm going to drink this muddy water and this mud pie, is is I'm, that sufficient? I mean, South Africa's fairly prosperous. You, you, you get African my point. Country. But yes, I get what you mean. Um, you know, I, I think it's interesting that it is bread and wine because those are kind of universal foods. Most cultures have some sort of uh, strong drink. Well, all cultures yeah. have some sort of strong drink oh, yeah. that's more or less analogous to wine. And all cultures, almost, have some sort of bread thing. Um, so it's interesting that the, those are the ones that Jesus picks. Yeah. So I, I think whatever your culture's quote-unquote bread and whatever your culture's quote-unquote wine with provisions made for those who struggle with alcoholism, if you, you know, take your grape juice instead— um, that I think that's the way to do it. Whatever your bread is and whatever your wine is, go with that. So just to, just to press it a little bit, just to really, really hammer this in. So again, say you've got someone in Haiti who is working for three pennies a week, right? Three cents a week of work. And they and their family are living off mud pies and muddy water. Is that sufficient for them because they are physically incapable of procuring a grape drink or something similar to actual bread. I'm going to be pedantic. Okay. And say that the only culture I'm aware of where people actually eat mud is very specific tribes in particular parts of sub-Saharan Africa. I don't think they do that in Haiti. But if you were to do that, maybe if you, were, <laughs> I'm just nitpicking. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say that that's sufficient. Sure. Okay. What? But for those of us that can, you ought to. It's kind yeah. of so the Didache with its baptismal confession. Um, it doesn't say that pouring water over the head is insufficient; that you have to be dunked. But it's provisions for if you cannot be dunked, right? If you can reasonably get dunked. You ought to do that. But if you can't, pouring three water, water three times over the head is sufficient. If you reasonably can get some sort of grape drink and bread, do that. Okay. Um, That's there, fair. There, there, the church that I grew up in, there was a men's breakfast every third Saturday of the month or whatever. And while there, they would do the Lord's Supper. That's what they— referred to it as, but they would do it with whatever you had on your plate and whatever you were drinking, right? And so there were people doing the Lord's Supper with black coffee and bacon. And I don't know, man, would it have been that freaking hard to get some crackers and some juice? <laughs> yeah. You're getting breakfast food anyway. Get some grape juice. Get some grape juice. Get some grape juice, man. Like, and on one hand, I get it. On, on the other hand, they reasonably could have done it, quote unquote, right so I think they should have done it quote unquote right, right? Yeah, does that make sense? That is makes that, sense. Is that fair? Yes. If you can reasonably do it the right way, then do it. Then do it the quote unquote okay. right way. That's fair. So we're gonna move on because we've got a couple more things to touch on, and we're running a little long here. All right. Uh, next passage in First Corinthians chapter eleven, verse twenty-three. So this is Paul talking about the institution of the Lord's Supper. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Which is not quite verbatim, but almost verbatim to the Eucharistic institutions in the Gospels that we just read. And the biggest change we see here is that last little bit where it says, do this as often as you drink it and remember to me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That, that's not present in the other three, specifically. Right. Now, as for whether or not the other three just didn't mention that, or Paul just said that because he wasn't actually there, and he kind of just slapped that on, I can't really say. Well, he received it from the Lord, so... Well, yeah. You know, it's... Maybe Jesus added it it's when a he little, was talking to Paul. a little shaky talking about that, but it does bring up the question of, if that is the case, should we be doing this every time we eat with other people? Should we be doing this every time we interact with a fellow believer in Christ? Is, you know, most most Protestant churches here in the West do it once a month as a church body or once a quarter as a church body every three months or, you know, whatever time period they, they choose. Very few churches by volume here in the West decide to do it every single week. You know, every time they see someone from their church, every time they're out at lunch with their buddy, very few people do that by volume. What do you have to say about that having read what Paul said. Um, I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, and as I read more old stuff from the church, the more I find myself wrestling with this because old stuff that the church writes about this, um, influential voices like Justin Martyr and Ignatius of Antioch and others, Tertullian of Carthage, Irenaeus of Lyons, they all seem to think that the Eucharist ought to be administered by a bishop or a presbyterer, which is functionally the same thing as a modern priest. Um, And if it is not a bishop or someone who has been given the authority to institute the Eucharist, like a presbyterer by the bishop, the bishop has to give them authority to do it, then they, they don't have the authority to administer it. And the reason someone with proper, quote-unquote, authority has to administer it is because, in their understanding, Christ is truly present in it, and it truly does something. And it, as a sacrament, confers grace. Um, so, I don't know. I, I, I think okay. that uh, don't hound your pastors about this. Um, come alongside your pastors in love and humility and encourage them towards righteousness in all things. But if the opportunity comes up while you're getting breakfast with them or something to mention, maybe uh, let's do a communion more often. I, I find that it it yeah it does something in my soul when I take that little piece of bread and drink that little cup of juice. Yes. Um, and perhaps 
pray for them to uh, be spurred towards that because I do think it is appropriate at the very least for us to do it every Sunday because the yeah. church every Sunday until Zwingli all churches every Sunday every Sunday were taking holy communion okay um we've got one last passage here last passage. I'm going to blow through this we're not even going to talk about it once I read it we're just going to read it wow we're just going to read it and see what Paul had to just say just read it and then say bye all right let's um go. we've got one last thing after that actually oh. This is 1 Corinthians chapters, uh, chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be, will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About all other things... I will give you instructions when I come. Don't you hate that? Don't you wish Paul had just written it all down so we could know what he meant? I sure do. Ugh. But that is the last of what Paul had to say. And this episode is certainly running longer than we would normally hope. Hey, man, it's cool. Y'all can just like listen to it and uh, listen to it on your way to work one day and then on your way home from work and then on your way back to work. Yeah. And then on your way home again. And um, it'll be fine. I believe you have at least one thing you'd like to to draw attention to. Brother man, I have like four different things. Mm. Um, are, are, are you referring to uh, in reference to that passage or? No, to those readings you've got. All right. So. There, there, since we are running low on time, um, I'm going to not read all of the sources that I had prepared to talk about the Eucharist. And I'll, I'll just read. One very, very brief quote. Um, actually, I'm going to read two very brief quotes. Okay. All right. These are both from Ignatius of Antioch, who was an, a martyr in the church. He wrote a couple letters around the year 110. Ignatius of Antioch, he writes a couple letters to different churches while he's on a death march on his way to Rome from Antioch. He writes about some heretics. They... Abstain from the Eucharist and prayer because they do not admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, who suffered for our sins, which the Father in his goodness raised up. So he's talking about a group of heretics, and some of the worst things that he can think to say about them is that they're not partaking of the Eucharist. Um, and he is, again, writing around the year 110, so he's very, very close to the apostles. He likely knew the apostles. There are some ancient traditions that teach that Ignatius of Antioch, as a little boy, met Jesus. So, you know, he, he's a, shall we say, a, a person of good repute. Yes. Um, that... that quote comes from his epistle to the Smyr the church in Smyrna. 
Uh, I encourage you to read it if you can find it. Um, it's available online for free. Um, all his epistles are available for free. If you uh, are interested in that. In his epistle to the church in Ephesus, he says, Breaking one bread, which is the medicine of immortality, the antidote against death, which gives eternal life in Jesus Christ. Which is a really great way to think about the Eucharist. He's, he's thinking about it as a thing that does something. And what it does is confers grace. And by conferring grace, it rescues us from sin and death. Um, so for Ignatius, as he understands it, the bread and the wine does do something for Christ is truly present in them. And what it does is it saves us from sin and death. It is medicine for us. It's medicine for the soul, um, which at the very least is a much more beautiful way of thinking about it compared to the, uh, it's symbolic because it's symbolic. Well, it's symbolic of what? Yeah. It's symbolic of flesh and blood. Okay. I guess I can see how bread and wine kind of are symbolic of that insofar as they kind of look like that. Batman's symbol on his chest is a symbol of a bat. Cool. It looks like it. But that's not nearly as beautiful as what Ignatius says about it. No. It's, it's not nearly as uh, meaningful. Yeah. Is what Ignatius and says. We'll be talking about him and a lot of the stuff he had to say in the near future, hopefully, in dedicated episodes. Um, um, I'll, I'll let that be the end of my, yeah. my and extra bit. There's sources. even more that I had to say that I wanted to pull up that we just don't have time for. So perhaps we'll have to do a baptism, or sorry, a, a, a Eucharist part two sometime in the future and, and talk more about it because if if the length of this episode wasn't indicative of this there is no short supply of things to talk about it's regarding true. the eucharist um but well that's to, uh that's it then i guess no so no no i've got one last thing okay and this may not come across as great on an audio only podcast but i thought it would be in the spirit of christ to end this episode by ourselves partaking in the Eucharist. Well, we're not bishops, but uh, I reckon we can do it anyway. Yes, so we have here some red wine and hot dog buns, because hot dog buns are the only bread I happened to have at my house on the evening of this recording. So we will be partaking of the Eucharist with red wine and hot dog buns. Um, Which is, you know... A grape drink and, and bread. a bread. So, so close yes. enough. Go ahead and get our hot dog bun prepared here. Why, why don't you hold the bag closer to the mic and oh, really crinkle yeah, it? Really, really get in there. Yeah, there you go. People love it. So, William, would you be so kind as to lead us in the Lord's Supper? I sure would. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks and blessed it, he said, this is my blood, poured out for the sins of many. 
take and drink. Amen. Amen. Well, that that was the Eucharist possibly part one. Yeah. Um, um, if you like this episode and you're listening on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe. If you are listening on Spotify, we would appreciate a five-star review. That will help us in the algorithm so other people can find us. If yep. Or you can uh, share this episode with a friend that you yeah. think might enjoy it. Or if you've perhaps got any other questions or comments, feel free to email us at theologyish at gmail.com. Any, any closing thoughts? Nope, that's it. Uh, well, I mean, I have plenty of closing thoughts, yeah. but, uh, you know. Partake of the Eucharist if you are a, a Christ follower. That is my only closing comment. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Yep. Have a good one. <laughs>